Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 14th of January with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I spoke with David Antonioli, CEO of sustainability and environment standards organisation Vera. We talked about how Vera's verified standards are enabling the growth of the carbon markets and how business can use verified emissions reduction credits as part of their journey to net zero. And this week, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari to get the latest on the upcoming Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Climate change and environmental hazards have topped the World Economic Forum's annual survey of global risks. Every year, the WEF's Global Risks Report tracks global risk perceptions among risk experts and world leaders in business, government and civil society. It examines risks across five categories, economic, environmental, geopolitical, societal and technological. And this time, climate action failure, extreme weather and biodiversity loss were what worried the surveyed experts most. The concerns about climate change overtook inability to tackle global pandemics at the top of the list. Environmental issues had been the biggest concern in 2016, following the Paris Climate Agreement, followed by weapons of mass destruction between 2017 and 2019 as North Korea rattled sabres. This year's Global Risks report does reflect general unease. Only 3.7% of those polled said that they were optimistic about the outlook for the planet. Something that is perhaps positive is the growth of commitments and financial pledges, particularly at and since COP26, that are aimed at really tackling deforestation and forest degradation. A significant part of this is, of course, sympathetic reforestation that restores biodiversity and positively impacts indigenous communities. With this in mind, the Trillion Trees Initiative has developed an online tool that provides practical guidance for investing in forest restoration that will provide social and environmental benefits. The Trillion Trees Guide to Investing in Forest Restoration takes users through nine diagnostic questions to consider when assessing forest projects. The questions are specifically designed to establish how a programme might deliver against climate change, biodiversity and equality of opportunities for people around the world. Trillion Trees is a joint initiative of BirdLife International, Wildlife Conservation Society and WWF. How to engage consumers on the impact of what they eat and whether there's any behavioural change is a question that many brands keep asking. Norwegian online grocer Uda has started producing receipts that tell customers the environmental footprint of their purchases and says that demand for red meat and other higher impact foods has dropped since the programme was launched. Speaking to UK online newspaper The Independent, Uda said that customers had fed back that they could not make climate friendly choices due to a lack of information, so the brand looked into easy ways to communicate on emissions. Products are now grouped into three categories of high, medium and low emissions. Oda said that one in every five burgers sold is now vegetarian, its customers are buying 50% more fruit and vegetables than the average consumer, and that sales of meat substitutes are growing 80% year on year. Innovation Forum's spring conference season is on the horizon, and a few days ago I had a chat with my colleague Hannah Homari to get the latest on April's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event. Well, joining me is Hannah Homari, who's the project director for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event that's coming up 26th to 28th of April. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. Tell me a bit about the format for the event this year. We're still online, aren't we? What are the benefits of this approach? Yeah, that's right. We're going virtual again. The benefits of that mean that we can have attendees and speakers join us from around the world. And of course, all the sessions are recorded as well. So in the case that you miss any across the three days, you can always go back, watch them on your own time. And then also the recordings are all available on the platform for up to a year for all attendees. So it also serves as a nice long-term learning resource. 
And I think we've certainly learnt over the past couple of years that we can deliver the content from the sessions really well online and combine that with the interactivity we've got on our conference platform. I think it's a mix for a really interesting event for sure. All right, so the themes for 2022, what's changed from last time and what are the themes that have emerged for you? We're still very much building on the conversations that took place at last year's conference, but the focus this year is more on what a regenerative apparel brand looks like and then how brands can develop their net zero strategies, engage consumers, scale circularity, and drive positive social impact. But I'd say really that focus on climate action is a key topic. Absolutely. Everyone last year, a big focus was for was obviously COP26 in Glasgow. And I think now we're still seeing that the impact of what was decided there and what was debated there is certainly going to be with us for this year and beyond, of course. And regenerative is certainly the term that we're going to be hearing a lot of, I'm sure. So what are some session highlights that we can look forward to in April? We're running our pre-conference workshop on the 10th of March, and that's focused entirely on climate action. So as you mentioned, off the back of COP26 and the renewed fashion industry charter, you know, the new ambitious climate commitments in the industry, we'll be taking a deeper dive into, into what the industry's road to net zero actually looks like and how you can get there. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then otherwise, at the main conference, one specific panel that jumps to mind that I'm looking forward to is one called Green or Greenwash. So we're looking at how brands can credibly justify claims to better inform consumers and tackle misinformation. That's just so key, understanding how you can cut through the noise and really empower consumers with authentic and credible information to help them make better choices. Worth pointing out that the 10th of March workshop will be exclusively for people that are signed up for the event. And we'll come back to that a little bit later as to how you can do that. So that's some of the sessions. What about some panellists? Who have we got coming this year? We're really excited. We'll be joined by Wendy Savage, who's the Director of Social Responsibility and Traceability at Patagonia. Lauren Bartley, she's the Head of Sustainability and CSR at Gandhi. And then we also have Anna Wind. She's the VP of Sustainability at Naked.com. And we have yeah a number of other great speakers lined up, so we're really looking forward to hearing from all of them. And loads of speakers are still to be confirmed, of course. We're still recruiting and putting together all the sessions. It's an exciting time for sure. So how can our listeners get involved then, Hannah? Are there some sponsorship opportunities still? Yeah, there absolutely are. We have a range of speaking and sponsorship opportunities open, so you can just get in touch with myself or my colleague Matt Archer specifically for sponsorship inquiries. And listeners, if you want to speak to Hannah or any of the Innovation Forum team, go to the Innovation Forum website and their email addresses are all there. Of course, listeners can join as delegates. And it's worth pointing out we have a special delegate discount deadline coming up very shortly on the 21st of January. If you want to save £150 on conference passes, make sure you're registered by then. For now, Hannah, thanks very much. Thanks, Ian. And I do hope you can join us in April. We've been looking at the growth of the carbon markets over the past few months at Innovation Forum and thinking about their essential role in helping business to reach net zero emissions over the next few decades. Coming up now are highlights of a conversation I had a few weeks ago with the CEO of Standards Organisation Vera, David Antonioli. We were speaking just before the COP26 meetings in Glasgow. Why don't you start off by quickly introducing Vera and your work developing verified carbon standards? Vera is a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., and we are a nonprofit that's exclusively dedicated to certifying outcomes. So we're a certification body, and we manage a number of different certification programs. Our flagship program is the Verified Carbon Standard Program, the VCS program, which is the most commonly used carbon crediting program in the voluntary carbon market. 
Where are these standards applicable and how are they helping to drive the carbon markets? You know, I call them a greenhouse gas crediting program because it's more than just words on a piece of paper. And so I think the formal reference I like to use is a greenhouse gas crediting program because they essentially provide the glue that make the market work. And it's because they stand in the middle between demand and supply, right? So you have demand, which is corporates who want to be carbon neutral and want to go beyond their science-based targets, for example. And then on the other hand, you have project developers wanting to develop projects. But in order to make that market work, you need something in between that actually gives credibility to the underlying activities that generate the emission reductions that then the corporations can have confidence in. We serve as the glue, and what it is is that we provide a set of rules and procedures that projects have to follow in order to demonstrate that they have high integrity, that they meet all of the basic requirements that carbon crediting standards or carbon crediting programs require. And the reason I say that we're a carbon crediting program, again, is that so we have a standard at the core of it, but we also have rules for the development of accounting methodologies. We have rules for auditors who can audit under what circumstances. And then we have a transparent registry that lists all projects, prevents double counting. So those are all key characteristics of credible greenhouse gas crediting programs. How long have you spent developing these standards? I mean, clearly there's a lot to get right behind the scenes there. So how long has it taken to get to this point? VCS was first started in 2005 when it was begun basically as a steering committee process. First version came out in 2006. We're now in version four. So it's taken us a long time to get to where we are. And it's still an evolving product. I mean, we continue to update our rules based on new findings, whether it's scientific findings, whether it's best practices, or whether technology moves on, for example. So by way of example, we no longer credit renewable energy projects in developed countries and in most developing countries because we believe that those credit, those projects can stand on their own. They don't need that carbon finance. In that case, technology moves on. So we need to update our standards. It's an evolving process. We need to be aware of all the changes that are happening, both in government regulation, technology, best practices, science, et cetera. And we need to bring those into the standards that we manage. It's certainly a key point that the standards evolve because inevitably, as the carbon markets develop, it's still all very new. So it's necessary that the standards develop to ensure that there's best practice throughout the market. So what's the role of offsetting and helping the global economy decarbonize? Yeah, it's a great question. The reason is because if we were just offsetting, then we would risk essentially just moving the deck chairs around. Offsetting has to be part of a broader solution, and it has to complement reductions that are being made either by corporates internally within their supply chain or reductions that are being mandated by government. If you think about the volume of emission reductions that we need to achieve the targets of the Paris Agreement, by 2030, we need something on the order of 25 gigatons of emission reductions annually. The carbon markets are currently generating two to 300 million tons per year. The best estimate is that they might scale to 10, 15 times maybe by 2030. You're looking at two to three, maybe four gigatons. So it's a small part of the solution. But again, it's really important to recognize that these are offsets, right? There's still emissions going to the atmosphere on the back of these offsets. So the way I think that carbon offsets can really help is that they can complement internal reductions being made by corporates, either voluntarily or being mandated by governments. But also a key aspect is that the carbon markets have an existing infrastructure that can be invested in today and scaled up today. So as corporates start to look towards their net zero targets out in 2050, maybe even before, how are they going to achieve that? There's still going to be a lot of emissions in the atmosphere. To the extent that corporates can actually invest in projects to reduce greenhouse gases 
or remove carbon from the atmosphere, it's going to make our job later at cleaning up the environment much easier. Not that it's ever going to be easy, but it'll make it a lot less difficult. That's really important because we have the infrastructure and the ability to drive a lot of finances to places where it's needed, where we can actually prevent emissions or remove carbon from the atmosphere that is going to benefit the environment. So, David, what are the essential characteristics of credible carbon crediting programs? The credible carbon crediting programs around the world, so the BTS program, the Gold Standard, the Climate Action Reserve, the American Carbon Registry, have pretty much all have the same basic characteristics. They have kind of a standard that sets out the, the units that the issue will meet certain requirements that we pretty much all agree to. You know, the credits have to be additional. They have to be permanent. They have to be measured. They have to be tracked. All those kinds of things that we think of as a high quality credit. They all have rules for developing accounting methodologies, which is how the actual parameters and data that you have to gather to measure the carbon you're removing from the atmosphere or, or preventing from going into the atmosphere. And those are just counting procedures for the credits and also a way to demonstrate that the project is additional, meaning that it wouldn't have happened otherwise. We all have rules that govern how we oversee and work with auditors working under our program. So we work with the International Accreditation Forum. We have accreditation programs. We work with accreditation programs currently in the U.S., Canada, Colombia, building one in South Africa, and other countries to expand the cadre of auditors that can work under our program. And then we have a registry that lists all of the projects. It lists all of the documentation behind all the projects, where you can see all of the auditing reports, all of the project descriptions, all of the representations that project developers make. And that has an individualized unit for every carbon unit that we issue that prevents double counting and keeps track of all of the units. So those, I'd say, are the basic elements or characteristics of credible offsetting. And you'll see that in the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, they've kind of agreed a draft set of core carbon principles, and it reflects these basic elements. Now, they've also added a couple of really important elements, which is about the governance of the organizations that are managing these standards. Ideally, they're not for profit, right? Because you don't want us to be driven by the profit motive. And there also has to be governance procedures. For example, we have to have clear rules about how we update our rules. So I mentioned earlier that we update our rules all the time. Well, we're also running a number of consultations all the time that are setting out proposed new rules. And we have to have basically a regulatory process. We have to have input from the public into our eventual rules. And so those are some added features that the task force has done rightly to include in the governance of these organizations and these carbon crediting programs to make sure that they're credible. Let's just pick apart additionality a little bit. I think this is an absolutely key part of any offsetting scheme. The additionality part means that without the investment from the carbon credit, then emissions would have occurred. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. Okay, so that's the key point that without this investment, the forest would have been destroyed or other emissions would have emerged. Let's think in terms of Red Plus in particular. So Red Plus is a particular type of project. So how would you characterize the state of the Red Plus market right now? I think it's quite healthy. Red Plus has a number of really important things going for it. I mean, Red Plus is obviously conserving projects, conserving forests and restoring forests to some degree. It's not like these projects are building a fence around a forest and telling everybody to stay out, right? What they're actually doing is working with the surrounding communities, for example, and they're providing the communities with some of the important resources that they've never really gotten from the central government because it's hard to get money out there. Oftentimes governments don't have that money. And it's been a challenge to reach these far-flung communities. 
that otherwise may actually deforce the force. Red plus really in many cases, I'd say most cases, are really development projects that you're working with communities, providing them what they need, whether it's education, health benefits, clean water, whatever it is that the community decides that they want. In addition to jobs and income for patrolling the forest, for example, many times they're actually working with the community to provide improvement in agricultural production to reduce the pressure on the forest. So these really are development projects. And so you ask about what's the state of red. Once people realize that these projects are doing this kind of community work and improving and really benefiting communities that have often been ignored by the central government, it's an incredibly powerful story. So I think on that sense, you know, it's really quite strong. There are some concerns about kind of the quality of red credits in particular. There's been some concerns around the baselines. We continue to evolve the rules for how projects set their baselines. And, you know, back when we started this 2010, 2011, we knew that there was a particular way of setting the baseline, which was to find a reference region, which we could use as a proxy for what had happened there, and then use that as a proxy for what's going to happen in the project area. Well, we've now learned that governments are taking the lead in developing jurisdictional baselines, right, which is the baseline. And that's great because governments are now stepping up and being able to do that. And now it allows us to create the baseline based on what the government is doing. Not all governments are doing baselines, but that concept of a jurisdictional baseline is a very powerful concept that's gonna be able to provide and kind of allocating the baseline down to projects, we think is gonna be able to provide even more confidence for these credits to make sure that people have confidence in them. It's just a different way of creating the baseline. And this is an evolving sector, right? We just need to continue to be aware of the changes in the science and the best practices. And in this case, what governments are doing in some cases, and incorporated that into our thinking in our long-term efforts to protect forests. Let's compare then Red Plus project approach to other approaches. You mentioned just now, you know, jurisdictional approach. How do you compare the benefits of Red Plus compared to that jurisdictional approach? They're slightly different, right? They're both meant to conserve forests, and they just provide a different set of tools to address the problem. Projects provide on-the-ground support directly to communities, and governmental efforts programs tend to provide it through governments and the incentive structures are somewhat different. We believe that the holy grail, if you will, on forest conservation using carbon finance relies on both approaches. If you can enable project activities, that's going to be able to deliver direct benefits to communities. But if you link it to government-led efforts that are better able at providing overall incentives, right, and maybe the regulations, you can then basically get the best of both worlds because these two models are rather different. They access different kinds of capital. Generally, companies like to work with projects because there's a clear boundary and there's a clear definition around what am I getting? Which community am I investing in? What are the benefits I'm seeing? The government model can be a bit more diffuse. So it's it's harder to get that. I guess the key is enabling local communities a lot of the time because if they don't benefit, then they trees won't remain standing. Their asset in the past has been their trees, so therefore they have to have other economic incentives to keep the forest standing if the project's going to work. And I guess a project approach allows that to happen straight away rather than thinking about the trickle down from government. I know that there are pros and cons of both. Thinking in terms of Red Plus versus other project approaches then, how do you compare those? Well, there's a number of different approaches out there, right? I think it really depends on the flavor 
of whatever a buyer wants. Some buyers really like the red story. Like I mentioned before, they like the fact that there's a community that's benefiting from this project that's hiring local patrol officers to check the forest and make sure it's not being deforested. They like the fact that communities are getting agricultural technical support to become more efficient and reduce pressure on forests. And they love the fact that communities are getting schools and clinics, et cetera. That's just an incredibly powerful story to tell. And so it may be that some companies really like that story because it resonates with their corporate culture, their ethos, maybe gives them license to operate in certain places. The other thing that RED does is that it obviously benefits biodiversity. And that might be something that corporates really like. And there's obviously a lot of kind of water benefits as well. But there are other projects that bring that as well. So you think about agricultural land management projects, right, that are promoting regenerative agriculture. Those projects bring a tremendous amount of drought resilience to farms, flood protection, and help farmers as well kind of turn, use more regenerative agricultural types of approaches on their land. And you've got other types of projects. You've got blue carbon mangrove conservation and restoration projects would have, again, a number of other benefits. You've got the more industrial types of projects like landfill gas, or maybe stopping leaky wells or like abandoned wells from emitting methane. There's a number of different criteria that a company should ask itself when they're looking at credits. Is it nearby? That's a big criterion. Is it like in my country or is it in my community? What kind of benefits are being provided? What are the non-carbon benefits that are being provided. And for that, you know, you can also, the other two programs that we manage, the climate community and biodiversity standards. I mean, back to your question about RED, most RED projects, I think, certify against the climate community and biodiversity standards because they want to be able to tell the story that these projects are benefiting not only the climate, but communities and biodiversity as well. And you can also certify against the sustainable development verified impact standard that allows you to demonstrate that you're meeting some of the sustainable development goals, right? And that can be very, very powerful. So it's a hard question. There's a variety of different projects. I think RED has a unique role. And, you know, back to your point about additionality, these projects are highly additional because forests are under threat, whether it's for timber, pasture land, illegal mining, you name it. There's all sorts of threats on forests that carbon finance can help counteract and to help protect those forests in the long term. You referenced the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets just now. They predict that voluntary action through the carbon markets will need to increase 15-fold by 2030 and 100-fold by 2050 from 2020 levels if the scale to help the economy decarbonise is to be achieved. How can we get there and where does Red Plus fit in in that story? It's a provocative number, right? It's great to think that the market might get there, but I'd say, go back to my previous point, that if the market gets there and we don't achieve the scale of reductions internally by companies or mandated by regulation, then we're not going to solve the problem. So it's great that people are talking about the scale of the market. That's great. But let's not lose sight of the main goal, which is to make sure that corporates are reducing their emissions first and using offsets as a complement. And second, that we really should be pushing our governments to regulate carbon. A key point is for there to be confidence in the markets. Where should people look, David? All that information is already there. I mean, if you go to our registry, you can find all that information. The point is that once that has been processed and there's been a governance body, we've kicked the tires, right? We've looked at these greenhouse gas credit programs and they're legit. That will add a certain amount of confidence to the idea of offsetting and investing in carbon reduction projects. 
I think that's the key thing. There will be a common taxonomy that all of the greenhouse gas crediting programs will follow based on that, which will allow it to be more comparable, right? And be more streamlined. And I think that's the thing. Like if you look at our registry, you've got all the information. If you look at the Climate Action Reserve registry, it's got all that information, but they're in different ways and they're different packaged differently. So some consistency, I think, will be really useful. Confidence in the consistency then is going to be the way forward. Certainly though, the carbon markets have an enormous role to play. That's something that everybody agrees. If we are going to get to a decarbonized global economy, then the carbon markets have a huge role to play over the coming years. For now though, David Antonioli from Vera, thank you very much indeed for taking us through an introduction to the carbon markets and the various programs. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual insights, analysis and podcasts. Look out for a new story from business and climate specialist Mike Scott on his predictions for 2022. And don't forget also to take advantage of the early bird discounts for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference in April now. What you need to know about this and all of the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.